I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Um, this is my, this is the magical publication day, this book. So I just want to thank Faber for making such a beautiful book and it's doubly appropriate because it's about a woman who I think needs as many gifts retrospectively as, as I can give her. Uh, it is based on a great aunt but I didn't know much about her. She was committed to an asylum in the 30s for moral reasons something we were quite fond of in Ireland in the 30s. And never was really heard of again, and I don't know what became of her. But I was thinking about her for many years and finally found a beginning for her with her writing her own account secretly in her asylum, nearly 100 years of age. And this is a, a part of her testimony of herself and it is a dark story, but this is a, this is a section where she reaches a moment where she can itemize her happiness, uh, which she considers a very important thing to do. At this point in her life, her father has died. She's a young woman. She's working in the Café Cairo in Sligo. And she's doing the ordinary things of the day. Strand Hill is the seaside place outside Sligo where people used to go dancing. And um, my great-uncle and my great-grandfather owned the dance hall out there, the Plaza Dance Hall, actually, in, in so-called real life. I, don't, I, can, I find it quite hard to distinguish between the two at this stage after 23 years of making all this stuff up. <laughs> um, so, and she's talking about the moment she met properly her husband-to-be, who later is... Is, is involved in committing her because she's considered unsuitable for him. But these are innocent days when she meets him and she meets him in the sea, as you'll find out. And his brother Jack is there. Roseanne's testimony of herself. Curious to relate, it was not in the Café Cairo that I met Tom, but in quite another place. It was the sea itself. It is along the strands of the world that the privilege of possessing children is most blatantly seen. What torment for the spinster and the childless man to see the various sizes of little demons and angels ranged along the tideline. 
like some species of migratory animal. The human animal began as a mere wriggling thing in the ancient seas, struggling out onto land with many regrets. That is what brings us so full of longing to the sea. I am not an entirely childless person. That story also belongs to the sea, or the strand anyway. My child. My child went to Nazareth, that's what they told me, or that is what I heard them say, but I was not hearing anything very well, very properly in that time. They might as well have said Wyoming. Strand Hill's beach is narrow, heaped, endangered, and the hill of sand itself seems to have drawn up its enormous knees to escape the goings-on below. There is a long, rough promenade where gigs, carts, sidecars, high traps and motor cars used to be parked, the occupants spilling out, I am sure, always with the same level of human anticipation, the kids barreling away ahead, the fathers laughing, cursing, the mothers admonishing, panicking, all the to-do and turmoil of normal happiness. Knee-length bathing suits vying in eternity with those wondrous bikinis I have only seen in stray magazines. How I would like to have sported one of them. And at first, no doubt, just a few brave houses built on the marsh and acres of blown sand, scotch grass, the land rising and rising until eventually touching on the realm of Knocknaray, where Queen Maeve sleeps in her stony grave. From the top of Knocknaray, you can see the beach at Strand Hill, but the people are only pins, and anything the size of a child is just a dust mote in your eye. I have looked down from there, despairing and weeping. All that country was my country later, Strand Hill, Strand Hill, the mad woman of Strand Hill. At first a few houses risked on that uncertain ground, then the old hotel, and then huts and more houses, and then sometime in the vanished twenties Tom McNulty built the Plaza Ballroom, a glorified corrugated iron warehouse with a round roof, a square concrete front of the hall, with an oddly modest door and a ticket window, the brightness of both beckoning, promising, oh, and a tumultuous whirlwind of dreams rising from the approaching crowd every Friday night, reaching, no doubt, as far as heaven to comfort God in the doubts of his creation. That was Tom McNulty's work, father and son, to put a ticket on those dreams, and I felt that dream in me with passionate completeness. To sit here, writing this, my hands as old as Methuselah's, look at these hands. No, no, you cannot, but the skin is thin as... Did you ever see the shell of a razorfish? They are strewn all about Ross's strand. Well, there is a filament of transparent stuff that covers those shells like a drying varnish. It is strange stuff. That is my skin now. I fancy I can count my bones. The truth is my hands look like they have been buried a while and then dug up. They would give you a fright. I have not looked in a mirror for about 15 years. The first few feet of water at Strand Hill were safe enough. In summer they were like a bath. The sea there made only the slightest effort at going in and out, it always seemed to me. Maybe the children peeing in the water had something to do with it, with the heat, I mean. It was lovely, though. Myself and Chrissy and the other girls from the Café Cairo. Mrs. Prunty always tried to employ good girls for the café, but good girls that looked good, which is a different thing. I think we looked like young goddesses. Mary Thompson could have been a picture in a magazine. Winnie Jackson was a picture once in the Sligo Champion. Miss Winnie Jackson enjoys the fine weather at Strand Hill. 
her in her beautiful one-piece bathing suit sent down to her in a box from Arnott's in Dublin on the Dublin to Sligo train. There was Stylvia. She had a lovely plump bust, and I think the lads felt only despair looking at her that they would never even get talking to her. Our skins going all African in the steaming heat of August. Our faces bright red sometimes in the evenings going home across the strand, burnt off of us and lying in bed then in the town, hardly daring to let our shoulders touch the sheets. Happy! And then the skin calmed down the next morning and longing to go way out to the beach again and then again and then again. Happy! Just straightforward, ordinary girls we were. We liked to bring as much despair as we could to the lads. <laughs> Who watched on the sidelines of our happiness like sharks, devouring our attributes with their eyes. Sometimes I'd get talking to a lad at the dance. Lads didn't say much, and when they did talk, they didn't say much worth hearing. But that was all right. There were all sorts of the dance toffs from the town and lads with trousers too short for them, showing their socks or bare legs stuck into battered shoes. There were always a few donkeys tied up outside and nags of one sort or another and hearts healed, carts healed up. The mountain spilled out its sons and daughters like a queer avalanche. Lovely humanity. Father Gaunt was always there or some such, one or other of the curates, the herons among the minnows, by God, there was some sort of dance hall act, I seem to remember. Or maybe I imagine that. I believe they railed against dances in the church, but I wouldn't have been privy to that. There wasn't supposed to be much touching. It would be queer, cold dancing without touching. It was lovely to snuggle up to a lad at the end of a dance. You sweaty and him all sweaty too in the summer. The smell of soap and turf off him. And that stuff in their hair that time, Brilliantine was the name, I think. There'd be fellas there whose fathers and mothers probably spoke Irish in the back hills of Sligo and who from going to pictures now and then had the idea they had obligations looked like stars of the silver screen. Unless it was looking like Irish patriots they're trying to be. Maybe that was it too. Michael Collins had been a strong man for the grease in his hair. Even De Valera was well slicked down. <laughs> and Tom McNulty's band blowing up a storm. Young Tom standing there at the edge of the stage with his trumpeter clarinet raised, blasting out the sort of music we had then. You had to have the jazz for the dancing, but also the foxtrot was still danced there, and even the waltz. Tom even had a recording made called Tom McNulty's Ragtime Band. By Jesus, that sent the hall into a frenzy. There was a light shining out of Tom then. Of course, at that time, Tom was just the great man I had never spoken to, unless it was in the cafe to say... What would you like? To which the answer would most likely be China tea and a dead fly bun. Earl Grey for the brother. He was dead keen on the dead fly buns. I wonder if they still have them. They were like religious objects at that time. You couldn't have a cafe without them. What would be the point? It's funny how fixed everything was in those times. Dead fly buns, cream cakes... Eclairs, cherry buns with white icing on top. It was like those things were as ancient and established as whales, dolphins, mackerel, like natural occurrences, the natural history of the cafe. It mattered altogether that my father was gone, but somehow I was able to tuck that in under the pillow of my hair, to sleep on it, as it were. 
I couldn't help the happiness when I woke in the morning, yes. There was my mother to see to, but I was able to feed her and look after. She never said anything or went anywhere, just kept to the house in her stripy housecoat. And there was that energy in me, like a motor car being started with a starting handle, cranking me up. I was cranked up mysteriously every morning I woke. I was aflame with energy. It swept me out of the house and through the streets of Sligo and in through the glass doors of the Cafe Cairo and had me kissing my friend Prissy good morning and laughing. And if Mrs. Prunty was around, she would give me her shy smile, and I would be jubilant, jubilant. It is always worth itemizing happiness. There is so much of the other thing in a life. You had better put down the markers for happiness while you can. When I was in that state, everything looked beautiful to me. The rain slicing down looked like silver to me. Everything was of interest to me. Everything seemed at ease with me. Even those slit-eyed corner boys of Sligo with the yellow fingers from the coffin nails they smoked. The yellow stain above their lips where the fag was stuck in permanent. Accents like bottles being smashed in a back lane. There now. But all that comes back unbidden. I sat down today to write of Tom and the sea rescuing me in the sea of happiness. I plunged in. I think I knew where I was going. It is curious to me now how I remember so completely the feel of that light wool bathing suit on my skin. It had three thick stripes alternating, and I had saved the whole winter for it. You couldn't have found a nicer one in Sligo. A hot Irish day is such a miracle we become mad foreigners in a twinkle. The rain drives everyone indoors and history with it. There is a lovely lack of anything on a hot day because our world in, an, in its inner truth is so wet the surprised greens of the fields and hills seem to burn with a sort of bewilderment, a wonderment. The land looks lovely to itself and the girls and boys along the strand are painted into the tawny yellows and the blues and greens of the sea also burning, burning, or so it seemed to me. The whole town seemed to be there, everything suffering the same brushstrokes of the heat, everything joining and melding. I don't know if the plaza existed just at that time. It must have done because I had seen Tom McNulty playing, but if it did, it would have been 1929 or after, even so I wasn't exactly a girl. But I am confused about this. It is hard to know a person's age in a bathing suit in the riot of the sunlight. And I can't see what age I was. I am peering back with my mind's eye. And all I see is fabulous glitter. And the undersea just as glittering. Speckled, chained in miracles somehow. That wonderful half-blindness the eyes have underwater. Blurred because the sea itself is a huge lens. Like you are wearing the sea itself before your face. So it's gone even more like a painting. A furious, mad painting. There was a whole book of them in the town hall library. The fellows that painted in France and were laughed at to begin with. Like they didn't know how to paint. I won't risk writing one of the names, but I do remember them. Hard, harsh names and troubled lives to match. I can say them in my head as I write, but I'd be ashamed to spell them wrong. And myself in that undersea, my whole body loosened, but also sharpened, my lungs rich with air at first, and then beggared, and the head lighter, lovelier, and the chiller, water deeper, washing my face, asking my face who it was, what shape it was, in infinite detail. Suddenly I am longing to tell Dr. Green about this. I don't know why. I imagine he would be interested in it. It would please him, but I would also fear he would read something into it. He interprets things which is dangerous extremely. Oh yes, the 
beach at Strand Hill, high tide as it was, is good for a little, then it plunges down. You are suddenly in the big water of the bay there, the big muscle, enormous, like the famous Hudson River. No, not as big as that, of course, but I felt I was not so much entering as touching something vast, flexing there under God's eye. Could I feel it pull me out swiftly? deeper, I don't know. I do know I gave my heart to it. I do know I was moved by it. Maybe I wept. Can you weep underwater? It must be possible. How long was I swimming without coming up? A minute, two, three, like a pearl diver in the South Seas, whatever they are, wherever they are, myself and my bathing suit, and inside the suit, a little pocket with two bob in it, which would be my fare back to Sligo on the old green bus. For safety's sake, stuck in that pocket, like something you could keep a scapular in if you're a Catholic. And I suppose my youth, my softness, my hardness, my blue eyes, my yellow hair sleeking underwater, and maybe 300 sharks out there, beginning to be in the neighborhood of sharks. Wonderful, wonderful, I didn't care. Become a sort of shark. The great pull of the current beginning to take me, like a word lost in a swell of music, then in all that happiness, suddenly enveloped, stolen back, taken up by human arms. I knew, expert, almost devious, and this person, sleek and round and strong, raised me up through the wild glitter, and we broke the surface, and there was the roaring world again, and the heaving sea, and the sky, whether up or down, I didn't know, and the swimmer drew me back to the strand with the boys and the girls, the buckets, the old cannon pointed out to sea, the houses, the plaza, the stunned donkeys, the few motor cars, Sligo, Strand Hill, my fate, my fate as woeful as my father's, my ridiculous, heartless, funny fate. I remember very clearly, I was sitting on a, uh, on a, on my bed in a hotel room in Toronto and I read one too many newspaper articles that described me as English. And actually, although I sound English, I'm, I'm not English, I'm South African. And I can also talk like this to, to prove that to you, should I, should I, should I need to tonight. But um, my Afrikaans great-grandmother was interned by the British in, an, in a concentration camp during the Anglo-Boer War. And I went to Bloemfontein to see the site of that camp and to learn a bit about that forgotten conflict. And from that grew an entire novel set in the 19th century about a family of English grocers called the Huntleys and their ostentatious London house and their support for the war effort. I was all ready to go, and then suddenly an old lady called Joan wandered into my head, and I thought, maybe the book shouldn't be set in the 19th century at all. Maybe the Huntley's house should be a modern-day nursing home in Wandsworth. And maybe Joan can imagine the 19th century characters and their stories. It became a bit more complicated than that, but I'll read you a little bit from it. This is right at the beginning. Number 17, Kingsley Gardens, presided over a leafy street on the south side of the river, protected from the traffic of Wandsworth Bridge Road by its own substantial grounds and a low-rise 1950s development of flats and shops. A flight of stairs led to an imposing front door, beside which a brass plaque engraved the Albany, was discreetly obscured by a well-pruned yew tree in a terracotta pot. Only a wheelchair ramp spoiled the illusion of an exclusive gentleman's club, though its expansive width and polished gold rails implied a superior sort of disabled access. Eloise helped her mother from the taxi and put her arm around her shoulders. Here we are, she said. Yes, said Joan. Here we are indeed. 
They stood together on the pavement, admiring the building's exuberant exterior. As the Albany's full-colour brochure informed potential residents on its opening page, the home occupied a Grade II listed Victorian mansion, sympathetically restored to the highest standards and retaining many of its original period features. Above them, the architectural fashions of a thousand years competed for prominence on a densely crowded facade across which turrets, cupolas, and bay windows had been liberally scattered by an effusive architect of the late 19th century. Medieval arrow slits sliced through Jacobean gables. Slate roofs rose steeply, dotted with eau windows. Gothic arches, Norman columns, and Corinthian pilasters jostled for attention across a frontage of white stucco stamped above the door with ornately intertwined G's and C's. Goodness me, said Joan. This looks like the best one so far. Eloise spoke with the slightly hysterical optimism of one who has spent too many successive Saturday afternoons examining residential care facilities for the elderly. <laughs> it's certainly better than that place in Enfield. I'd never have let you live there, Mum. Joan squeezed her daughter's hand affectionately. She did not remotely condemn Eloise for putting her into her home. She had not brought her into the world, given her life and loved her, raised her and cared for her as best she could in expectation of return. She reminded herself of this and gripped her hand more tightly. <laughs> Aloud, she said, No, of course not, darling. They rang the bell and were met in the pillared entrance hall by a smartly turned out nurse in a uniform of grey and white whose name tag read Sister Karen. And you must be Mrs. McAllister, or may I call you Joan? She enunciated each word with sprightly professionalism. I'm the nursing manager here. Welcome to the Albany. There was something representative, Joan thought, in the tone of Sister Karen's voice. It carried in it the well-scrubbed tiles of the Albany's entrance hall floor and suggested scrupulously tidied, air-freshened public rooms. She was amply built and moved with careful purposefulness. If you just follow me, she said. Joan glanced behind her to make sure that the pair of burnished brass piano pedals that had materialised in the taxi were with her now. They were. She was glad of that, for this was their first visit in a week and she was eager for their company. They had not made a single appearance at the nursing home in Enfield, a fact that had heightened the impact of its dank passageways and concrete-paved garden. Buoyed by their lively presence, she followed Eloise and Sister Karen to the reception desk and waited behind them while Eloise wrote, Joe McAllister, Eloise McAllister, 10.53 a.m., in a visitor's register, and the nursing manager asked them if they'd like a hot drink. Eloise worked long hours, Joe knew, and she was anxious that this visit should not consume more of her daughter's precious free time than was necessary. She was also eager to enjoy the pedal's unexpected reappearance in private, as one never knew how long they would remain for once they'd come, or where one might find themselves without their kindly guidance. So she said, I'm quite all right, thank you. Perhaps we could begin the tour, and turned expectantly towards a majestic staircase, the banisters of which appeared to end in a pair of winged mahogany angels. Joe was quite accustomed to seeing extraordinary things in matter-of-fact places, and the sight of these heavenly figures did not unduly astonish her. The first visit of the piano pedals had been shocking, to be sure, a little disturbing even, they had materialised over her bed in the early hours of a dark morning three years before. An alarming spectacle at first, though once she put away her fears and learned to befriend them, they had taken her on many adventures. She was now seldom, if ever, 
surprised by the curious things she sometimes saw. These piano pedals are a portal to adventure for Joan. Uh, she's, she's in the early stages of a condition called dementia with Louis bodies, which early on acts as a very vivid heightening of the imagination. Eloise takes her on a route-tracing trip of a lifetime to Bloemfontein, and when they come back, she retreats from the banalities of institutional life by restoring the Albany to its former splendours. And interacting with some of its previous inhabitants, she makes friends with a 16-year-old boy who's uh, archiving a bundle of uh, decaying papers in the local library, and that's the papers of the Huntley family. Uh, Miss Muir was their governess. Uh, Gordon Huntley was the grocer. His wife was called Clementine. Um, And, of course, as Joan creates their drama, it inevitably becomes the drama of her own life. She was married to a rather brutal man named Frank, whose mother, Astrid, lived with them for 25 years and sang uh, hideously and and in appalling tune. Joan was a concert pianist, uh, and both Frank and Astrid had appalling taste in music. Uh, (laughs) The only other thing you need to know to to get this next scene is that Joan has a wheelie, one of those things, a kind of Zimmer frame thing that you push, and she's christened it Cordelia in, uh, in memory of a childhood bike of that name. Halfway... At some point in her construction of the Huntley's drama, she feels that she's killed Gordon Huntley and left his children at the mercy of a wicked uncle. And this is where we find her. By the time Nurse Fleur appeared with her dinner tray, she had resolved on a course of action, and she tucked into the breaded lumps of processed flesh on her plate with every indication of of enthusiasm. When the nurse had gone, she disposed of her yoghurt and settled to wait impatiently. And though it took some time for the pedals to appear... She knew with absolute certainty that they would come. Aha, she cried, as they materialised, glinting over the golden syrup tin on her desk. Follow me, Cordelia. The corridor outside was deserted, and it was neither Joan nor the pedals who transformed it into 17 Kingsley Gardens, but Miss Muir, who appeared from nowhere and hurried along it. She was wearing black skirts and a bonnet, and as she went, all trace of the Albany disappeared behind her, with the curious effect that 17 Kingsley Gardens appeared to trail in the governess's slender wake. From the hall rose subdued murmurs, as though of a great gathering of people, and it seemed to Joan that she'd returned to the house at a moment of crisis. She went to the head of the stairs and peered over them. From where she stood, only a partial view was possible, but it was enough to confirm her worst fears. Swathes of black crepe were draped extravagantly over every available surface, and a multitude had assembled. She had arrived, she knew, at Gordon Huntley's funeral. She went to the lift and took it impatiently to the ground floor. As the doors opened, she made a decisive effort to see the Albany's receptionist, for it was vital to know the enemy's whereabouts, and was pleased to discover her in the act of packing up her bag and putting on her coat. Have a good evening, dear, she called, congratulating herself on the faultless sincerity of her delivery. When the receptionist had left, Joan made her way through the throng, looking curiously about her at the clothes and faces of the ladies and gentlemen. It was odd, but she seemed to see them only in the aggregate. No matter how hard she focused, she couldn't look at them directly. She had a strong sense, however, of black dresses and black-edged handkerchiefs, of fans of black ostrich feathers on tortoiseshell sticks and black hair ribbons, and though she could not hear the words, the conversation was sombre and subdued. 
Responding to this atmosphere, Cordelia twisted a piece of black crepe about her handlebars as she led Joan to an ornate mock Elizabethan hall chair to await developments, the pedals hovering tentatively beside her. The Albany had quite vanished. Indeed, it seemed suddenly unlikely that it had ever existed or ever would. Tenses, Joan thought fleetingly, were so difficult to manage when you had no idea which century you'd find yourself in from one moment to the next. Only by the greatest effort of will did she keep hold of the fact that, though she might not see Sister Karen should she appear, the nursing manager would certainly see her. She kept her hands resolutely in her lap and did her best to calm their anxious trembling. Now a hush fell over the waiting crowd. She had a sense of a hundred necks twisting and turned her own in their direction, towards the radiantly lit staircase, and what she saw almost made her faint. She herself stood at the turn of the stairs, in the dark wool suit she had brought for Frank's funeral. But this was quite wrong. Frank's death had marked the end of his tyranny, and she would not undo it for anything. She closed her eyes and began to tap, and when she opened them, Clementine Huntley stood on the landing in deepest mourning, her arms about her sh children's shoulders. Joan wonders what to do, and she decides to transform the scene. It's not going to be Gordon Huntley's funeral any longer. She's going to make it into a ball for Clementine's birthday. This should not be a funeral, but a ball, she decided, clapping her hands. A ball for Clementine's birthday. At once, Mrs. Huntley's cheeks began to glow. Joan leaned forward and tapped again. The sound of her hands coming together, heightened by the ache of her arthritic joints, had a stimulating effect on the people around her. She clapped again, and a fan, somewhere to her right, burst into a riot of peacock feathers. That was better. Then Clementine's dress of deepest black taffeta began to lighten, became the colour of the sea at night, and then, catching the tone of the peacock fan, a beautiful aquamarine, with a low neck that revealed pert and powdered bosoms, rather like the ones that she herself, in better and lovelier days, had possessed. The conversation around her grew louder, Someone laughed. An orchestra began to play a polka by Strauss. She saw that the guests around her were eager to dance, to carouse the night away in revelry. It was for this, after all, that the house had been built. Not for sad old people and belligerent staff nurses. Not for pompous death, but for joy and laughter and social display. As if to emphasise their complete accord with her, the interior furnishings now began to gleam with a magnificence she'd not yet seen. The hubbub of conversation grew louder still, forcing the orchestra's volume up with it, and the black crepe disappeared. Fur stoles slid across the ladies' shoulders and their necklines plunged. Jewels appeared, yellow diamonds and emeralds, an amber brooch and a delicate setting of platinum roses. It seemed to Joan as if so many of the bad things she had done, the little lies and occasional meannesses, the small deceptions, were expiated by this monumental effort she made to bring and give joy. It became clear that Gordon Huntley wasn't dead at all, merely late for his wife's party, called away on urgent business but hurrying home for the first dance. She tapped her feet and clapped her hands. She was almost dancing herself. And as she did so, more jewels appeared and more furs, and the hairstyles of the women complicated and shone. But now Astrid entered the hall, bringing with her a wave of Ivan Novello that clashed horribly with the Strauss. No, shouted Joan, but even the pedals could not remove her. She wants me to resurrect Frank, she thought, stunned at the audacity of it. But I won't. Joan, called Astrid, Joan, take your hands off me, I'll never... 
One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. I do it. Never. Cordelia. At once the wheelie sprang to attention, moving swiftly back and forth between Joan's hands and Astrid's short, fat legs. Joan, everything's quite all right. Astrid began to shake her. Joan knew that unless Gordon Huntley entered the room immediately, Astrid would use the scene's dramatic potential for her own ends. It was understandable that a mother should wish to raise her son from the dead. She would do the same, but she would not raise Frank. How dare you? She, she attempted to stand, playing for time. Around her, people had begun to dance across the entrance hall tiles. Outside, she heard the unmistakable sound of a carriage drawing up and knew that Gordon was raised from the dead, if he had ever been dead at all, that he would shortly enter a room full of his friends and gather his lovely wife in his arms. She clapped and silenced the novello. But another clap, not her own this time, and then the gradual spreading of heat across her cheek set it off again. Now Astrid was launching into the first verse of Every Bit of Loving in the World. Shut up, cried Joan, who had never once criticised her mother-in-law singing. You're horrifically flat, can't you hear? But this resulted only in another slap, which stung more sharply than the first. She pushed her away with all her might. But as the butler went to admit Gordon Huntley, Astrid's damp palm connected once again with her cheek, and the force of it a third time was destabilising, disastrous for concentration. The door began to open, but as it did so, the dancers around Joan grew formless. Their jewels stopped blazing, and through their rosy cheeks and shimmering gowns, notice boards appeared, and a computer monitor. And then abruptly, with the suddenness of a tragedy, 17 Kingsley Gardens disappeared as swiftly as a dying fountain jet. You bitch, she said, looking straight into her mother-in-law's eyes. You vicious bitch. Mr. Barry, you drew me into your story. Um, Mr. Mason, I felt there was some distance to yours. Is that about the tone and the first and third person style you've adopted, or do you think it's me? <laughs> Is that me? It's the distance between Wicklow and South Africa. But, but also maybe it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's always interesting when you're reading, and this is, this is the first time I've ever read from this book, it's, it's being published next week, you have to choose which part of a novel to read. Um, and, you know, The Lighted Rooms is about old wars and rare metals, there are hedge fund disasters and stock market crises, and you have to work out which bits you're going to share with, a, with an audience. So, um, I don't know, I think maybe the first person is 
more immediate. I wrote both my first two books in the first person. I quite like the range and breadth that, that third person narration can give you. I don't know, what, what do you feel about the first person, Sebastian? I think they're both impossibly difficult. <laughs> and it, it can't be done in either form. <laughs> so I don't know how, how on earth we, we're ever, the angel ever sits on your shoulder, I don't know. Oh, um, I wanted to ask you, Sebastian, about yeah. your move from poetry. I first came across you as a poet yeah. many years ago, and um, you, you've, you've moved through lots of different forms since then, but, but um, wh why, why did you move from poetry? Confusion, <laughs> bewilderment, all the usual <laughs> reasons why we... We stumble from one activity to another. Um, I think when I was, uh, I was talking to Richard Early, he used the phrase when, I, when he was young, which I wanted to slap his face when he said, <laughs> but when I was young, um, I, I, I was very desirous at about age 21 of, of, if not being the greatest poet in the world that ever lived, at least the greatest I Irish poet. And even I could see after a while that this possibly wasn't the case, so... I don't know if that's the reason. Or. But there's a lot of poetry the in the book. I mean, the way that you write, I think you can, you can incorporate prose and poetry and its rhythms into yeah. prose, and you absolutely have done that in yours. I don't know if there's a division, actually, to tell you the truth. Um, I think in many ways I'm quite a primitive writer, and I think of writing as the activity of the creature even before Homo sapiens sapiens, and that these forms that we that we enshrine in, in academia are in fact all from the one form just as you know we as creatures on the whole earth all come from the one unfortunate wriggling thing uh, so I'm, I'm quite content to be a little bit uh, before the fact and I felt you know as a young person you write in the forms that you've learned at university and then gradually you, you, you naturally start to shed them you're looking for the forms inside yourself. Oh, well, just one other thing. I was thinking that um, lots of writers start with poetry and feel restricted because it's, it's so self-involved. But mm -hmm. you seem to have retained that degree of self-involvement because you still, you, you, you write about family members in an oblique way. Yeah. And I, well, I suppose that's just a way of, of uh, that's, that's just how you move the poetry into, in, into fiction, I, I guess. Yeah. There's, there's been a mysterious... I mean, again, a young person sees themselves very vividly in the landscape. As you get older, I find you yourself start to fade in the landscape, and these other figures take prominence. And they're often the figures that you've had the greatest amount of love for. And if they're no longer alive, you have the greatest desire to retrieve them from the cold hand of history, or whatever that is, the oblivion, uh, which is an activity of poetry, but it's more expansively done for me in a novel or a play. The, also, the poetry world is quite savage, as you may know, <laughs> or it used to be in the 70s, especially Irish poets. I remember coming to the Poetry Society to do a reading, and a very distinguished Irish poet, the one who didn't get the Nobel Prize, said to me, um, what are you doing here? <laughs> so I've never quite forgotten that. <laughs> but it's a good question. What am I doing? Yeah. 
were you ever a playwright? I, I, <laughs> where was I on the dad, night? Or, your dad. Yes, I was at the National that night. Uh, no, no. Yeah, no, I am. I was, yeah. Oh. I am. I am. Oh. I am. But you're much younger than he I said. expected. I thought you were going to say And I feel much older than I look. Could, could you just, the nicest, the nicest could you thing just I saw... give me a couple of your plays? It wasn't The Skull and the Something. The stu- no, that's Martin McDonough. He is young. Oh. <laughs> he was 12 when he wrote Queen that. What about I, I, The Queen of Liana? That's also I, Martin McDonough. <laughs> I got mooched up. <laughs> so, but I do know your name so well. But uh, you must have... I'm not going to help you out now. <laughs> You've humiliated us both enough. No, no, you haven't. No, I'm, I'm flattered. I wrote a play uh, ten years ago one. called The Steward of Christendom with yes. Donald McCann. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. So I was right, no way. You were completely right, <laughs> but I was, and I was wrong to be unkind. Oh, you're proud. It seems to be about 100 years since I saw the title of the play. So I knew the name. It's 100, it is 100 years. That's what I keep telling my agent. Why am I doing that again? Uh, Sebastian, you gave us an absolute virtuoso reading. Thank you. And we gave an Im- we got an impression of a humorous and elderly lady, yeah. which belies the theme, as far as I see it, of the magnificent, almost mystical book of an elderly lady who leads a, a life of unremitting misery. Um, am I wrong in thinking that there is perhaps a larger allegory there, that Roseanne perhaps stands for something larger, if not the secret scripture of the poor? Well, for me, for me, the reason I wanted to write about her, having thought about her quite a lot since 1989, was I had a passionate instinct that she would know how to live. And if you think of all the wonderful books, especially of the 17th century, how to live, and especially how to live in Ireland, um, and Thomas Brown, Religio Medici, that she, she loves. Um, how to live in Ireland, how to live in the world, how to live as a human person, how to live as a man, the hardest job, one of the hardest tricks. Um, and I thought she, I had a feeling she'd know because she has th- so much thrown at her that her hunger for the solaces of life beauty of life is remains. Uh, that's that wonderful phrase in Thomas Brown, to palliate the shortness of our lives, we do such and such and such. And she's had a long, long, long life, but she's able to itemize her happiness. She is a, a magician of happiness, or an expert on happiness, because she knows the other thing. And, and I don't know if that makes her a larger person, but she, it makes her a kind of urgent person for me. Because as the father of three children, and with a natural inclination to not be paying attention to happiness. I think for your children, you need to show them the face of happiness. And I thought from her, I could learn that face. So whatever that is, I don't know. Um, Richard, you said the book went through sort of several revisions. Um, do you feel sort of much of the, the original version kind of stayed alive in the book as it... Yeah, so the completed version of it, or, or do you almost kind of wipe the slate clean and just move on? That's, a, that's an interesting question. You know, what I've, 
what I love about books is the way that characters lead you to curious things, where you can change your mind and take enormous decisions about the creative world that you're that you're making that of course you can't do in your in your real life world. And this, I mean, this book actually went through sort of three very interesting stages. It began as a as a novel about the 19th century. I mean, the, the modern world was invented in the sort of 1860s. The Victorians gave us electricity and advertising and supermarkets and high-speed travel. They changed the world quite emphatically and they embarked on a conflict in South Africa that I think uh, has a lot to teach us about what's happening in Iraq now, where the world's major sovereign power uh, invades a resource-rich independent nation in the aims of defending democracy, finds that they win the war pretty easily but can't, uh, can't subdue a civilian population passionately opposed to the occupation and so resort to appalling human rights abuses in order to win. And I spent a long time creating this family uh, called the Huntleys, Gordon was a, he's a grocer and he'd made lots of money out of funding the war effort. That was all clear and then suddenly Joan came into my head and I thought, maybe, maybe I should write a book about a, an old lady imagining the 19th century. And, and I wrote that book and that was the book that you know, I sent to my publishers and was bought. And, and I was very well edited in the, in the writing of this. And I spent some time with a dear elderly friend of mine called Polly McAllister who in fact gave me her, lent me her surname. And as I was embarking on the sort of final stage of the book, it occurred to me that the act of imagining a 19th century family is what a 30-something novelist does. It's not what a, what a person really at the end of their lives does. And I thought about it a lot because, of course, when you, when you make a decision of this magnitude with a book, a, you can't really go back from it once it's done. Um, and I took Polly to a concert and I t- told her about it and I said, you know, Polly, I don't I don't think that a person of your age, at your stage of life, would just imagine a whole new family. I think you would see your own family. And she took my hand and she said, Richard, sometimes you can't escape them. And I thought, that's absolutely right. And so Joan begins by imagining the Huntleys, but they quickly become her own family. And she's forced to confront uh, situations that she... And, and challenges that she avoided in her real life and is also given the opportunity to win for herself a triumphant death which no one else can see while she's sitting alone in her wheelchair shaking um, and so the curious thing about the book is that it began about a novel about the 19th century it became a novel about a 19th century family and it became a novel about a 20th century family Jane's family and so I mean it took me on a very interesting series of revolutions I guess Thank you. My favorite 19th century English quote is something Carlyle wrote, whom I really admire. Uh, he said, if the Irish cannot be improved a little, perhaps they ought to be exterminated. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I think he meant it humorously. <laughs> I'm quite sure. Just thought I'd throw that in. <laughs> More questions? Thank you. Um, well, I guess this is to both of you. Um, in the course of writing, do you show your work to anybody, or do you wait until it's... I don't at all, ever. I mean, I can't bear to. I, I, I teach some creative writing, and I watch some of my students who you know, are very happy to share chapters from novels in progress with each other. I just absolutely can't do that. I have to do 
I mean, it's an interesting question. How, how do you respond to criticism? How do, you, how do you deal with showing your work to other people? I like to finish the whole thing or to get it to a point where I feel it's finished, which, of course, is never anywhere near the final finished version. Um, and then I think, then I do show it to people, but in the past, I used to show it to a lot of people. And actually, I found that very creatively distracting because everyone has an opinion about a book, you know, and every opinion is valid and almost every opinion is different. Uh, but the writer can't take all those on board. And so now I'm very scrupulous. I show it to, you know, my American editor, my English editor, my partner, Benjamin, and sometimes my mum, but, but increasingly less so. And, and then, I pay, then I pay a lot of attention to what they say. Uh, but I try not to pay too much attention to what other readers think, not because they're wrong necessarily, but because it just it complicates your own head if you have too many voices commenting. What do you think? My, well, my mother used to... My mother would never read anything I wrote, but she would always say quite kindly to me, well, Sebastian, the great thing is you have the common touch. <laughs> and I'd say, but how do you know since you've never read... No, I'm quite sure you do. <laughs> So that's sort of helpful, actually. Um, a book, for me, is between me and the sacred editor, in this instance, Angus Cargo. And it is it's a strange process because a painter is alone with the painting. And, but sometimes painters do bring in uh, particular people to have a look as they're doing it. There's the, that old thing in 19th century painting of varnishing out. And there is a moment when yourself and your editor reluctantly decide it's the moment to do that. And sometimes you're trying to chase in bits under the varnish in a mad sort of way. Uh, but that's it, and I think it, it, it comes to, to an end, and you have to reluctantly close the book in order to, for other people, hope, equally hopefully, to open it. But it is quite a mysterious process. You've both almost made dementia entertaining. How was that? <laughs> Yes, well, you see, uh, one, one, the, the, um, the fact was, the funny, well, it's not in any way funny, the, uh, the Irish uh, asylums were often used at that time after independence, both for people who were extra people on farms and were going to interfere with the division of farms and there'd be too many divisions, so they'd be put away. It's sort of inner emigration, internal emigration, or also into... The, and, but there were also a lot of women put in for moral reasons because after independence we were supposed to be this this glistening Catholic holy country and since you'd be surrounded with evidence to the contrary that we were just ordinary living breathing people uh, moves had to be made and uh, people were given power that probably shouldn't have be given power which would be men, men in dresses as we like to say and, and they moved in on people and they did terrifying things to them and so and, and as you, you probably would agree if you're put into an asylum a dark asylum sane possibly won't be long before you are something else but she she is she is a survivor and I would I would hazard the guess that she never suffered from any form of mental illness and even as we speak there are many 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 women still in institutions who would have been put in as young women for having babies or whatever just as Roseanne was as we speak and who have never had their life I should, should think, I don't know, tell me about England or Scotland or, yeah. or America. I mean, the way that we deal with, uh, with mood disorders and with degenerate brain conditions is something I find interesting. I wanted to, 
I wanted to write a book that challenged the notion that that death, necess- uh, that old age necessarily has to be decrepit and sad and miserable and dull. Um, and and it struck me that I mean, of course, dementia. When you when the world starts to shift, when things start to happen that had not happened before, clearly that can be a terrifying experience. But I thought that also maybe. Uh, it might be quite fun. And I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time in nursing homes doing, talking to elderly people. I mean, you know, in South Africa, particularly in the black cultures of South Africa, the elderly are not um, separated from those who are younger than them. The whole notion of putting people in old age homes is completely against Zulu and Costa traditions. And I found it very sad that we segregate a part of the population that has so much to say it has lived through such a fascinating and, and dramatic century as ours. Um, and I made some really wonderful and enriching friendships while I was researching for this, this book. And one of the scenes that occasionally sometimes ha- something happens to a novelist where you think this actually has to go straight into the book. You don't need to imagine anything around it. And I was in a nursing home in Cape Town and a physiotherapist came to give the old people their sort of physio- aerobics workout, it was called. Everyone's in a wheelchair, and this 22-year-old girl with like a fabulous six-pack wearing a tank top, kind of moving around like this, just with, with no idea that the people in front of her just can't move like that, no sort of imaginative conception of what it's really like to be elderly. And in that, um, in that group, there's a woman called Eileen Kershaw, who, she had a sort of aura of goodness about her, which I've never thought of anyone else or described of anyone else, but it was clear to me that she had it. And she'd clearly been quite beautiful once, and she was very together, except when slightly more complex things were asked of them, and then she'd just do a sort of very elegant figure of eight with the sort of, you know, coloured stick that they'd been handed out. And so Eileen and I became friends, and I talked to her, actually having said, do I ever share the book with anyone? Um, I didn't share the writing with anyone, but I did share some of the ideas with some elderly friends of mine. Um, because obviously it's a leap to try and imagine an 80-year-old woman when you're a 28-year-old man. Um, and Eileen and I got to know each other quite well. We're sitting together over lunch one day, and I said what, exactly what I said to you. I said, you know, it seems to me that developing dementia, losing your mind, as people call it, could be terrifying, but that also it might be quite fun. And she, she leaned towards me and she said, it is. <laughs> and then she told me all about her technicolor interior life, uh, which geriatric psychiatrists basically never find out about their patients because the elderly can't be asked to make another friend. They don't want to confide their stories in anyone else. They're tired. Um, and so by and large, the people who treat them have no real idea of what life is actually like for them. Um, and Eileen said to me, you know, I said, in what way is it fun? And she said... Um, my twin passions were birds and philosophy and now I can sit in my chair and discuss Plato with the starlings and she can you know and I thought that was really quite wonderful I hope I can when I'm her age if you've both chosen old women as repositories of wisdom and truth I think that old women in west of Ireland have a cultural almost mythological status that would make it easier to explore and develop. But I think, as you did, to take the English colonial mercantile class, um, given the educational lives and the position that women had in that, didn't you find it very tough? 
You know, I didn't, I didn't come to the book trying to create a, a repository of wisdom. I think, certainly for me, you have to be led by your characters. It's important to have a fully imagined psychological world. And Joan sort of tripped into my head one day. I was reading the introduction to Howard's End, which is a wonderful novel I periodically reread. And Forster, in the 30s, was able to predict the mass homogenization of capitalism. He knew that in 70 years' time there'd be a BP service station on every single block and that each one would be exactly the same. And it upset him. Um, and it upsets me, too. It's something I really feel a lot. And he was describing his childhood house of Rook's Nest, which when he was a child was in the country, and by the time he was a grown-up it was in the town. And that's when I suddenly thought, maybe I'll, have, maybe I'll take the Huntley's house and put, sort of set it in the modern world. Uh, and Joan kind of tripped into my head, and then she really led me. You know, it, it was odd. It, it, I think sometimes you know that the writing's working when you don't sort of sit down and think, okay, well, this person had a child, what should they do? When suddenly you, their, their past becomes clear to you, and, and Joan played the piano very well as she was at the guild hall and she gave it up to get married as a lot of women in, in her generation gave up their passions uh, to become mothers and music actually gave me a lot of the plot for the book I listened a lot to the Mephisto Waltz by Liszt which when you get into it you can see it's actually all about manic housewife housewifely duties like, there's a lot of heavy dusting going on in the Mephisto Waltz <laughs> and you can tell that uh, the woman in question absolutely hates doing it. And then there's this wonderful uh, section, Espressivo Amoroso, which suddenly gave me all, all Joan's love affair. She had, a, she had an affair in her 40s, her only one. And it sort of was all contained in this piece of music that she'd love to play. So that's how I approach characters. I sort of get to know them, and then they take you on a, on a curious journey. To follow up on that question, I'm going to state the obvious. You're both men. I mean, you've wrote and written these from the perspective of a woman. And I'm going to be presumptuous and assume you've also written from the perspective of a man before. And I'm interested how you find the difference and why you both chose to write these novels from the perspective of a woman. Well, I, I, think, I think essentially you, you have to start off with the fact that it's a disgraceful thing to do. But then it's a disgraceful thing to write. Um, it's a disgraceful profession in many ways. Uh, I, I think you should write from not the point of view of anything. You find your people inside you and they occupy you. And they, as, as Richard says so eloquently, tell their own stories. Sometimes you have to wait a long time for that. And it's, it's not unlike salmon fishing in Ireland where you can look at a salmon pool for ten years and not even see a fish. In fact, if you see a fish, you'll never catch a salmon. <laughs> so it's a bit like that. And um, whether it's a man, a woman, or whatever who rises up, you, you must obey that. And syntax or gender is hiding, for me, in language. Um, I mean, one of my closest friends is Ali Smith, the Scottish writer. And uh, she's a friend of Janet Winterson. And we were recently toying with the idea of writing a book together. And because of that very reason, I thought, I suddenly thought of Ema Sumac, the great singer with five octaves, who was thought to be a woman called Amy Camus from Brooklyn, the name written backwards. So I thought I'd write with Jeanette and Ali as Amy Camus for that very reason. But I actually then abandoned that idea because, you know, what, what gender is the writer? It's, it's, it's an old question. I've often written 
It's not for women or about women, but with somebody inside you writing out and trying to communicate. Yeah. I, th I think that's, that's very eloquently put. You don't really choose the genders of your characters in advance. And of course, if you're a writer, you have to, you have to be good at you know, this whole thing of write what you know. I mean, to a certain extent, there's truth in that, of course. But actually, you have to be able to write about what you've not directly experienced. Otherwise, you can only write autobiography. And the act of fiction is, involves peopling a world in your head and letting each character become a fully formed personality. And so you have to be, you have to be drawn to men and women of different ages and in different places. And yeah, it's this curious feeling of you just sort of led by the, by the nose by mm. someone actually. And you discover all sorts of things about them that you didn't know. Um, you mentioned about, um, I can't remember exactly what you said, something about um, n not quite separating the people you write about from the people who they mm. were that inspired those characters. Mm. I want some writers say they have to separate before they do that. Maybe you could just talk a little bit more about that. Well, I th it's a dangerous, dangerous business. Um, and as I say, I, I've been doing it for maybe 31 years, and I have to remind myself sometimes when I'm talking quite blatantly about my great-uncle, Willie Don, in a novel called A Long, Long Way, I have to keep reminding myself that, in fact, he didn't exist. I made him up. <laughs> but it's as if when you make a book, you have given them a sort of time to be in, a sort of life. Or on the stage, when you make a character, there's a sense where you, it's an afterlife or a different life, and they have a separate, rather magical existence. So why should you distinguish, in a way? But that way madness lies, and perhaps that is the beginning of madness. Um, but, you know, the 19th century, I don't know why we keep going back to the 19th century, but the 19th century writers were not afraid to describe writing to madness, to a form of madness and to induce it, like Coleridge did, to his eventual detriment. Do you know, there is a sort of... Um, I just did a long interview this morning on the phone to Dublin about this thing, the different plays and books I've written and the real people behind them. And it was really difficult for me to separate, for the person who really needed the information, the real from the unreal. And then she rang me back an hour later and said, Terribly sorry, but my tape didn't actually tape any of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to do it all again. <laughs> so there. Anyway, that's not an answer, but it's my best I could do. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. 